Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Dong merrily, and here we come a wassailing and mostly welcome to my Christmas time capsule 2022. I'm Mike Fenton Stevens, and over the past year, I've spoken to some amazing people on my time capsule and asked them to reveal the five things from their life that they'd like to have in a time capsule four things they love, and one they'd rather forget. They've revealed that and much more, but I'm delighted to say that a few of them have been kind enough to talk to me again. Yes, of course I had to pay them, and in several cases I was breaking a court order, but they have generously told me the thing that they would like to put in a Christmas time capsule. You see, it all ties together. Even the title makes sense. Anyway, this is a collection of those conversations. Well, I call them conversations. Threats in most cases, and the occasional rant, but... Here they are for your festive entertainment. So let's kick off. And actually, that's quite an appropriate way of describing how she reacted when I asked her to do this with my guest from April 22, the Eurovision queen and Christmas glass of Bucks Fizz, Cheryl Baker, and her love of Christmas. Because I love Christmas so much. We've always fully decorated by the end of November. Brilliant. <laughs> people are divided, aren't they, between the people who adore Christmas and the people who think it gets in the way. Yeah, Mike Nolan. Hey, are we doing this now? Let's do it now. Right then. Go on then, start. OK. Go. Go. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> but you go. <laughs> How are you? It's, yeah, Christmas. Christmas to me is is everything. And it's one of those things that you either love it or you hate it. But I love it. I've always loved it. I remember the last time I hung my stocking up, I was 14. And I knew that, well, I assumed that Father <laughs> Christmas wasn't real at that time. It was Christmas night. I hung my stocking up. And the next day, Boxing Day, and I was 14, so I was a young woman. 
I said to my mum, mum, if I hang it up again, will you, will you fill it up again? Same thing. It doesn't have to be new toys or anything. Can you hang it I just, I, I just wanted to relive it because it meant so much to me. Isn't it weird? No, it's lovely. It's nice if you want to keep it going. People always say at Christmas, what a shame we can't be like this the rest of the year. But then it would get boring, wouldn't it? Yeah, parties every day and just eating that food every day would get boring. But you think about the way people behave towards each other. People saying, Merry Christmas, hello. That would be lovely, actually, yeah, for everyone to be kind. Mm. It'd be a nice world if, yeah, if we treated every day like Christmas. You're absolutely right. Indeed. Didn't you say your mum and dad are associated with Christmas? They got married on Christmas Day in 1939. So, wow. war bride. That day, I've seen a photo of them. You know, nobody wore white dresses because you couldn't get the material. So my mum wore um, a suit. She wore a burgundy suit with a grey fur trim. Wouldn't have been real fur because they couldn't have afforded it. And my dad was in his army uniform. And then he went off to war. That was that. So, um, yeah, 1939. I suppose, really, the anticipation might have been, let's get married now because we might not get the chance. Probably was. It probably Mm. was that. There were six weddings. It was a bit like a Mooney wedding. There were six weddings on the same day at the same time. It was like, roll up, roll up, get your wedding here. Literally, they sort of took it in turns to get married on Christmas Day. It must have been a thing, though, then, because my Aunt Marge, she got married on Christmas Day as well, so perhaps perhaps it was okay to get I doubt if you could do it today. But, you know, Christmas used to be, for us, my mum and dad's wedding anniversary, as well as it being Christmas. So my dad would pour two shots of whiskey Christmas morning that my mum absolutely hated and she used to pull a face, which made us all laugh, which made it special again, you know. And they would send each other cards that were like anniversary cards. And my mum would pull, she was a woman of few words, my mum, she was very funny. She put, um, to Ted, love doll. <laughs> <laughs> that says it all. <laughs> and my dad would put, from your ever-loving husband. And he put every year, and he had beautiful handwriting, my dad, every year he would put the same thing, from your ever-loving husband. Nothing else, no message. No, you mean no. to me, no happy Christmas, no happy anniversary, just from your ever-loving husband. But, uh, yeah, so Christmas Day was much more than just Christmas for me. Uh, having lovely handwriting, I think that's, in a way, almost all they taught boys at school. Working-class boys were taught how to write neatly yeah. so that they didn't have to go into a factory necessarily. They might be able to go into an office. Yeah. However, he did go into a factory. <laughs> <laughs> He was a shoemaker. So we were really poor as church mice. We really were. There were five kids. My mum never worked. She just raised the five kids. My dad was a shoemaker, but, and all of my clothes were secondhand, but I always had good shoes. As soon as I was a size four, which was at that time, that was the trial shoe size at the time because people had smaller feet then. And I was a four and I still am a four. So I used to get a new pair of shoes every couple of weeks, which was amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know how long it was between your parents getting married? And then I suppose shortly after that, he went off to war. Well, yes, he took his opportunities when he could. Obviously, they did come back every now and again. My sister was born. Oh, there you go. Right. He came back in 1943 or 42. He was back in 42. Actually, I'm, I'm, I might be wrong here because he was a PE instructor and a sergeant at Aldershot training the troops. So maybe he came back every now and again before he went abroad. But um, I know that my sister was born in February 1943. 
And so she's going to be 80 next February, which is pretty scary, especially because she acts like she's 30. <laughs> but then he went off to war and he didn't come back for four years. She was four years of age when she saw my dad for the first time and she'd only ever seen pictures of him in his army uniform. She wouldn't go near him. Why would she? He was a stranger. Yeah. But anyway, my dad didn't take any time at all. My mum was up the duff straight away with my brother. So four years between my sister and my brother, and they were both born on the same day. So a fit man then. Yeah. <laughs> 18 months later came Colin. Six years later came me. Six years later came Gary. So there's between the oldest and the youngest, there's 17 years. Well, yeah, your mum never got a chance to get a job. No. no. <laughs> it was Victorian attitudes where the man is the breadwinner, which is dark oh. nowadays. Can you imagine nowadays? You'd go, shut up. And actually, a lot of women are much better at winning bread. Yes. <laughs> oh, how lovely. Christmas Day, you can still celebrate your parents' wedding anniversary. I always post them. Lovely. I'll tell you something else, and I'm, I'm extending this, but <laughs> we lived in a little council flat in Bethnal Green, but at Christmas... Our front room was full of chains. We used to make our own chains and decorate. The whole ceiling was full of chains. If there was a gap, we'd put balloons in the gap. And always the tree would buy too soon, which I still do, and all the needles would fall. So by Christmas Day, you know, you just had bare branches. But it was magical. It was magical. Christmas is just fantastic. I just love it. It just brings back the most joyous memories. Um, but Christmas Day this year is just going to be one of my children and her partner uh, and a couple of friends are coming over. So it's going to be quite, there's only really six of us. Um, what are you doing Christmas Day? I mean, I think a good number is eight. So if you want to pop over. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell the missus. Uh, Cheryl, absolutely lovely to see you. Thank you very much. If I'd have known it was going to be on camera, I wouldn't have put my face on. <laughs> I'm take this scarf off, take my earrings off. I've been cleaning <laughs> cleaning the floors and making up the fire. So I'm like Cinderella. I've got to go now because I've got to do an interview. <laughs> <laughs> I can hear the bell chiming. It's nearly 12 o'clock. <laughs> anyway, have a lovely Christmas. And we hope you have a lovely Christmas as well, Cinders. Bye. So you can see it's all very professional here. Not at all thrown together, this podcast. But then I do always leave everything to the last minute at Christmas, don't you? Still, I'm sure that the wonderful star of Emmerdale, Homefront, Waterloo Road, The Worst Witch and loads of other wonderful TV shows, Nicola Stevenson, will be better organised than me. So, what would you like to put in the Christmas time capsule, Nicola? Oh, she's not actually here. Oh, no, it's a recording. Don't know why I'm asking her. Oh, here she is. My husband's Father Christmas outfit. <laughs> Everybody's got one, right? Yeah, of course, yeah. Actually, I do. Yeah. <laughs> I knew you would. I knew you would. <laughs> Obviously. But his is um, particularly splendid. It's one of the finest quality. It's very mm. good. <laughs> because he has been Father Christmas at the school fair every year uh, at our daughter's school. Mm. He had to stop, actually, last year because they've now both gone to secondary school. So they don't have a Father Christmas at the secondary school, obviously. And you can't carry on being Father Christmas at a primary school that your children no longer go to. Uh, <laughs> Not really appropriate, is it? Well, I don't know if you've been doing it <laughs> traditionally. 
Oh, no, but they've done a brilliant thing, though. Yeah. The new Father Christmas is a mum, is one of the mums. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. It's very modern in North London. They've now got a woman <laughs> playing Father Christmas. As a man, she's not being like Mrs. Santa Claus. No. She's being Father Christmas. Mm -hmm. Ho, ho, ho. Yeah. yeah, she's brilliant. But Paul was brilliant at it. And I think the reason that Father Christmas is in there, or his Father Christmas outfit, is because I am pretty obsessed with Christmas. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I love it. I mean, most people do. You'd be hard-pushed to find someone who hates Christmas, wouldn't you? Yeah. But... I really am very particular about it and it's my Christmas because I think Christmas was rubbish for quite a few years. It was good when I was a kid and then my mum sort of left. My mum and dad split up. My mum left to go and live in America. So I have no brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. My dad was quite unwell for a few years. So I, and I was single. Well, first of all, I had a boyfriend for ages who didn't really the want to do Christmas with me he went off and did Christmas with his family and so I was always sort of a bit on my own and a bit kind of wandering about and melancholic and just miserable at Christmas for years for years and years yeah particularly if you think Christmas should be something special yeah and I really wanted kids and uh, so when I married Paul and had two little girls it was like right <laughs> I am now the matriarch Christmas is mine. I'm, it is my Christmas and I will have it in my house and it will be how I like it. And me and Paul together, we've got, uh, you know, I, I let him have a bit of a say. Um, but, but it is, it's, it's all at my house. And if anyone wants to come, they can come, but I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> and I just love it. And now the kids are, I think Iris, my youngest played along this year. She's 11. Mm. I mean, even the big one who's 14 hasn't told me that she doesn't believe in Father Christmas anymore. No. I'd, I almost said to her a couple of years ago, started to have a conversation with her and she just went, Mummy, shush. I don't <laughs> want to talk about it. Very good. Very good. <laughs> All right, okay. And they're right. And of course, if you keep that going, that can go on forever. There's no reason why exactly. we shouldn't remain children at Christmas. Exactly. Mm. So we still do all the tradition. And the littlest one, I mean, the littlest one was visited by the tooth fairy last night. She's still <laughs> going along with it all. But I think it's so important to teach children to believe in magic, to, mm. <laughs> to believe in the lie of the tooth fairy and Father Christmas and the Easter bunny and all that. And I've worked out why it is, why it is we do this to children. And it's because I think the only thing that really matters in life is love, is to be loved and to love and to have love in your life. And really love is properly magic. It's, it's truly, truly magic. Mm. It can make you do insane things. Not, not in a Will Smith way. <laughs> <laughs> that's not love, that's ego. No, no that's not love. Not no. punch people in the face, no. No. But, in, you know, it can make you able to get up in the middle of the night, night after night after night, and feed a crying baby and have no mm. sleep and then get up the next day and look after them all, you know. And it can make you do all kinds of things, and it's truly, truly magical and I think that where we start to learn like build those synapses and start to learn that that is possible mm -hmm. is by believing in magic as children right that's what I think yeah no I know people who think the opposite think you shouldn't lie to children you should tell them I know this is me I bring these presents right from an early age and I, 
I, I can see what they're saying, but I disagree with it. Yeah. I think that that gradual, that transition you're talking about from them absolutely believing it yeah. to having a suspicion that it's not completely true mm. and then actually going, do you know what, it's not true, but mm. it's really nice. Yeah. And then actually if they realise they can take that really niceness and bring it into their life and go, well, you can do this as well. Exactly. You can play this game. So you say to them, well, yeah, you know, the magic of Christmas isn't that you get loads of presents and that, okay, it's not a man who comes down the chimney. Oh, my God, this this podcast should go with a warning, shouldn't it? Yeah, I, I will do, definitely. No children are allowed to listen to this. No. Okay, it might not be a man that comes down the chimney. This is only a matter of opinion. A matter of opinion. Yes. Some children believe that. Mm-hmm. But what is magic is all the love that is everywhere at Christmas and the fact that we stop everything and just love each other and family comes and we all make food together and we all give each other presents and we all just love each other. And all that love, all that being family and all being around is magic. And that is when true proper sparks fly. Mm. So that is magic and you'll have that all your life. So it's not saying goodbye to magic. It's actually saying hello to real magic. Saying hello to the real magic. A brilliant way to look at growing up. The lovely Nicola Stevenson there. Right, who else should we add to this mix? The potpourri of cinnamon and dried fruit that is our Christmas collection of guests. Well, what about the Citizen Smith and Last of the Summer wine star, Mike Grady? He looks like a piece of dried up old tangerine these days. Hang on, you can't see that. Who wrote this script? What? Oh, did I? <clears throat> Fair enough. Right, do you have a Christmas story for us, Mike? you old tangerine. No, I actually made a couple of notes uh, so that I can chanter for a, a few minutes about an, a Christmas when I was a little boy. Oh, that'd be fantastic. Let's hear that, Mike. It might be enjoyable. And if you don't want it, I'm going to make it into a movie. <laughs> now, if this is going to be a movie, I'm immediately thinking, which part shall I get? So I'm going to listen to this story very carefully because I, <laughs> I just want to know where I go for the casting. Look... Mate, I've had it from the horse's mouth. I know this part. I know this man. I am this man. I am this. <laughs> well, you're first on my list, Michael, so, you know, mm-hmm. checks in the post. Um, <laughs> this happened in um, probably about 1952. I was a, a little boy living in a very, very remote cottage in the countryside in Gloucestershire, mm. and it was a brutal winter with snow everywhere. And on Christmas Eve, it was the practice of my mother to put me to bed quite early because we had to be up for midnight mass. Ah, uh, yeah. And on this particular Christmas, I woke up and crept out onto the landing, and we'd had a visitor, which we never had visitors. And there was some sort of remonstrating going on. I wasn't sure what it was. And then the visitor left and I heard the car drive off. And I went back to bed and my mother woke me up and took me to, we walked through the blizzard to the nearest town a few miles away and went to midnight mass and saw my cousins from the countryside. And afterwards, everybody gathered outside of the the church and all the adults lit up and smoked and talked about (laughs) the news they had from Ireland. And we kids all played and ran around together at about 1.30 in the morning, Mm. Christmas morning. And on Christmas morning, I woke up and there was a box of toys there. And it was incredibly exciting at that age. And there was a further present as well from our visitor. 
Our visitor had been Mrs. Coles, and she'd popped in to give me a gift and had wanted to wake me up to give it to me personally, but my parents said, no, it's not a good idea. Mm. And what she left me was this toy that I still have to this day that my children played with, my grandchildren played with it. It was from the war, and it was a hollowed-out ship made of wood, just the hull, in the middle of which was a spring mechanism, and you built the ship on top of this, and then you pressed a little button on the side, and the spring mechanism kicked off and blew the whole thing wide open. <laughs> Absolutely. What a fantastic present. It was a great present, and it, it really still is. So that Christmas Day, that was what I played with mostly, and I was left very much to my own devices. My mother was in the scullery doing some ironing, and my stepfather would have been out chipping the path of ice between the back door and the outside lavatory. <laughs> and there was a tap at the door. And I was a bit frightened because I was kind of by myself in the room, in the main room, and I stood by the door and I heard somebody say, Michael? And it was uh, the voice of an adult woman, reticent. But I lifted the latch and opened the door. And it was howling gale outside and snow blowing everywhere. And she'd gone anyway. And I heard the car start up and drive off. And um, that was that for about 45 years when I was sitting with my now aged mum in her little flat in Chelsea and we were having a reminisce. And um, I remembered this incident and I said, do you remember Mrs. Coles? And my mother went very quiet and I said, you used to work for her? And she said, yes, no, I remember her very well. And I said, do you remember her coming to give me the ship? We still got the ship and we still played with it. And she said, Mrs. Coles turned up at the cottage on Christmas Eve and wanted us to wake you. And I wish we had now. She'd had a few drinks and she was a bit tipsy and the weather was bad. And she was killed in a car crash on the way home from our cottage oh. that night. I didn't ask any more questions. Oh, Mike. Well, I'm sure that's a toy you'll never get rid of. I don't think so. No. Yeah. I'll pass it on to maybe my grandchildren. I'll give it to them or something. Yes, you must make sure that the story goes with it. I will. Well, you have. You have, because here it is in the time capsule. Anytime they want to hear it, here it is. Mike, thank you very much. That's an amazing story. Thank you. Merry Christmas. Thanks, Mike. A bit spooky, actually, wasn't it? I mean, I know some people like to be frightened at Christmas. I mean, after all, A Christmas Carol is a pretty scary story. As you'll know if you've listened to our Christmas present to all our listeners, a reading by me of the full text of that classic Dickens story. It's a brilliant tale, and though I say it myself, brilliantly read. Well, if I don't say it, no one else will. Still, most people prefer to watch a lovely, sweet, classic Christmas movie, don't they? Including my next guest from Benidorm, Last Tango in Halifax, Catch-22, and the soon-to-be-seen final chapter of the Band of Brothers series, Masters of the Air. It's the lovely actor Josh Bolt. What's your favourite Christmas treat, Josh? I must stop doing that. Mine is, um, mine's a film. It's my Christmas Eve tradition. Okay, so for about 15 years without fail, every Christmas Eve, I set aside, because basically Christmas is all about, you know, it's all about giving. It's all about mm -hmm. everyone else. It's all about, I'm coming from a, um, you know, my mum and dad divorced when I was quite young. So my Christmas has always been divided between dad's side of the family, mum's side of the family. Even now, you know, Christmas is, it's not stressful, it's lovely. But of course, you know, every year I'm like, 
going to go pop over here, do this for now. Then I'm going to go back over here and do this. And it's always like, you know, sort of to and fro. Yeah. Um, and I think I first watched this film when I was about nine or 10, 11, maybe. And then without fail, I've, I've continued to watch it on Christmas Eve. And it's my little two hours to myself. That's just for me. And I get a really, really nice little Christmas Eve treat. Get a nice little expensive um, bottle of port. Like a nice, you know, proper one. And a yeah. nice um, proper cheese board. And I'll put Die Hard on. <laughs> it's the greatest film ever made, in my opinion. I love it. There's a massive debate about whether it's a Christmas movie or not. It still it goes on now on Twitter. You go on, it's starting because we're in like November. It's starting now. Oh, no, it is. It is. It is. It's, yeah, it's, it's set it on is. Christmas Eve. And it finishes with, oh, the weather outside yeah. is frightful. Yeah, Dean Martin sings us out, you know. Uh, um, yeah. I watched it with my dad for the first time when I was about, yeah, must have been eight, nine or ten, something like that, quite young. But, you know, he, he, as I say, because they were divorced, I'd go and stay at my dad's and, you know, a couple of nights a week. And we'd sort of have like a lad's night so I could stay up mm-hmm. later and we'd watch like a, a film that I probably shouldn't have watched, you know, something like Alien <laughs> or Reservoir Dogs or Pulp Fiction. They were always, <laughs> but that's how I think I sort of fell in love with movies and films because it was like, you know, I want to, this is what I want to do. I want to be, you know, mm-hmm. see these actors. And, and I watched Die Hard and I just thought, Oh my God. And it has been my constant. And obviously as I've gotten older and become an actor myself, you watch it and you just go, Alan Rickman in that film is just like, it's so good. And then I've sort Mm -hmm. of done a lot of research and I've got a book about it, about the making of it. I think it was one of his first proper film roles. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. He's obviously done a lot of rep and a lot of great theatre in England. And I think he'd done a couple of little films in England, but this was like his first big role. And he was like in his mid to late 40s i think when mm. he did die hard but you watch it and you just go christ he just blows everyone else away <laughs> he <laughs> does doesn't he like the scene Willis. where he comes out and pretends to be an american yes that's brilliant it's brilliant he's a british actor doing a german accent but playing a german with an american accent yeah who's it's like and he's, <laughs> it's just, oh god it's so like pitch perfect and obviously mm. that was like bruce willis's first rake wasn't it I think he auditioned for Die Hard and the, the producers were like, no, he's not this guy. He's on like some daytime TV show. Yeah. And then obviously they took a chance and he became Bruce Willis, you know, the the, the action uh, star. But he was perfect. He's perfect in it. It's, 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 it's a perfect film. And it's amazing because all those supporting roles in it, like Bonnie Bedelia is his wife. And I, mm-hmm. I can't remember the guy who plays the, the news reporter. Um, no, no, he's fabulous as well. The bloke who drives the uh, the limousine. It's yes, really brilliant. He's it? brilliant. He's, you know, and, and the, the police officer as well, who sort of, you know, saves the day. So it's been my tradition without fail, no matter where in the world I've been on Christmas Eve or whoever <laughs> I've been with, whether it's been with a partner or whether it's been with in my mum's house or my dad's house or with my grandparents. I'm so sorry, Your Majesty, but I do have to watch this now. <laughs> <laughs> and it has been a constant for, God, it must be 15, 16 years, without fail, die hard. And that's my Christmas Eve tradition uh, is a nice bottle of port, a nice proper nice cheese board, you know, proper good one and die hard. And that little hour and a half is just for me on Christmas Eve before I do the whole Christmas. Let's go and see the families and let's put on a big, you know, um, mm. that's my little um, little two hours to myself on Christmas Eve without fail. Um, I treasure it so much. It's, and it's, it's one of the best films ever made. And it is a definite Christmas movie. I, I'll die on that hill that it's a Christmas film. 
<laughs> You're right. <laughs> yeah. You're absolutely right. <laughs> yeah. We must put that as a Christmas memory and a Christmas movie. It's a, it's yeah. a piece of genius. You're right. It's, and I can't think how many times I've watched it, but it is one of those films that when you're thinking, what should I do? Do you know I'm going to watch it again? Yeah, it's... it's and you know what's coming and you yeah. know what's next. It doesn't matter. It's so good. Die Hard for me is my Christmas constant that's going in the um, the time capsule. Absolutely. Well, there we are. So every Christmas evening, you send yourself to sleep with that and a bottle of port, and then you wake up with Christmas ahead of you, and you go, yippee motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> 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 that, that's it, one. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Oh, the weather outside is frightful, but the fire is so delightful. And since we've no place to go, let's listen to some ads, shall we? We'll be back with more Christmas memories very soon. Ho, ho, ho. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back. Now, have you been a good little child? Oh, excellent. You're the one, are you? Rare as hen's teeth. In that case, here's a special treat for you. The wonderful Fern Britton, choosing the most important thing for her about Christmas. Well, there's so many things to think about, but I would say Father Christmas because it's very, very, very important to believe in magic. It stimulates your imagination, your creativity, everything about the impossibility or the possibility of impossibility is very, very important, which is why a lot of people like sci-fi and stuff like that, which is not my thing. But um, my children have been wonderful. They have never, ever, ever spoilt the magic for me. Never. And the only time Father Christmas let me down was my first Christmas absolutely on my own, living down in Cornwall. I was working down here. I was about 24. Um, And he didn't come. Uh, I got up in the morning and he didn't come. 
But then I realised, no, that's okay, that's fine, you know, because I'm happy, I'm fine. But since then, he's always arrived. It's <laughs> so important for the magic. It really is. I happen to have a Christian faith, but I'm not too bothered uh, about thinking that Jesus was born on Christmas Day. I'm quite sure he wasn't. But, um, you know, that's fine. I will. I, li- I like to go to the carol services and things. Um, but, you know, there's nothing wrong in celebrating a bit of pagan belief and a bit of magic. So I think he's great. I think everything about him is important. I once took the children to Lapland and we were there for Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, came home Boxing Day. Wow. Yeah, and on Christmas morning, we were taken on sledges, drawn by scooters, of course, not reindeer, (laughs) to this, all we could see as we went up this virgin snow was a a chimney sticking out of the snow. And then they parked around the front, and there was Father Christmas's house. And he, he called us in, me and the four kids, and we sat down, and he looked at my son, Jack, and he said, you've grown since last year. Perfect. I have once in my life pretended to be the real Father Christmas. It was fun, but I sort of cheated. I mean, the real Father Christmas obviously knows every child's name and all about them. But I, I cheated. I got a little elf at the front to chat to the child and then come round and tell me all the information in my ear. And then I had it all. But the children were young enough to be fooled by that trick. And the delight on their face when you'd say, hello, Peter, by word, I can't believe you're five already. And I know what you want for Christmas. They would just be open mouth. Well, I was tingling. You did that right. That was the right voice and everything. But of course, Father Christmas has to have people to go out and, and spread the message. Mm-hmm. He can't do everything. He can't do everything. No, unfair to ask him to. Yeah. I think once you lose the magic, mm-hmm. then Father Christmas goes. I mean, why would he bother? <laughs> yes, exactly. Some child did say to me, not my own, I don't believe in Father Christmas. And I said, well, lucky for you, Father Christmas believes in you. Uh, and they went, oh, yeah, OK, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fern Britton there, keeping the faith. OK, next with her Christmas offering is the lovely actress Nicola Bryant, who's still probably best known for her role Perry Brown, an assistant to both the fifth and sixth Doctors, Peter Davison and Colin Baker, in the long-running BBC drama Doctor Who. Here she is talking about her Christmases, and as they say in France, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Well, that's what they say if they're speaking English. Ah, well, plus ça change, as the English say when they're speaking French. I used to not like about Christmas, which was being forced to sit down and write all these Christmas cards, <laughs> is something I now enjoy because there are those friends who sort of you just don't get to see all the time. Mm. And even sort of, you know, distant relatives. And just by sending out those cards, you just make that reconnection. I've got some old landladies that I stayed with in <laughs> digs when touring decades ago, who I still stay in touch with. And we only do it at Christmas. We do that, how are you? And I'm just watching them getting older and older. And I'm in a home now. This is my home stress. (laughs) (laughs) But how lovely of them to know that you still think of them. Yes. And I think it means a lot to them. I stayed in their house, you know, and in some cases I was in shows that lasted a long time. So I was with them for three months or I was doing 
three or four shows mm-hmm. with a, a theatre. So I was in their house living with them and, and we became good friends and we'd sit and have a little drink in the evenings. So I've, I've stayed in touch with them. But it's the Christmas card that keeps that connection going. Lovely. A lot of people have almost stopped doing Christmas cards. Yes. And it, there is that thing where I go, well, you know, I don't need to chop down trees, but I make sure they're recyclable cards. They're not covered in glitter. Mm-hmm. And I do love putting the cards up. And, you know, my mum's always taken such pride in the numbers that she gets. Uh, <laughs> How brilliant. many have you got, dear? Oh, I've got. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say my favourite Christmases, which I think I didn't view them quite that way when I was young but are definitely the ones I look back and I think, oh, we had the whole family together. Um, All my mum's side of the family we'd have on Christmas Day or we'd be at theirs. And on my dad's side of the family, we'd trudge. We all lived in the same village. So (laughs) we'd trudge to to their house, um, you know, sometimes often in the snow. And yes, there were the, you know, the annoying aunt who wouldn't let you watch Love Story because there was swearing and kissing, (laughs) you know, all of those things. I mean, this Christmas will be my first year of just me. The first year we moved into the, our house that we're in now, which was 2016, I got all of my stray uncles um, who didn't have someone they were going to be with that Christmas and, and aunts and their dogs and their various pets all came to the house. Um, and it was, it was humongous fun. I think the three generations of women was what I enjoyed. My grandmother, who had been a cook in service. Wow. um, So she was very much a Mrs. Bridges, (laughs) would be sitting by the kitchen sink, you know, marking up the Brussels sprouts, you know, the peeling and the the cross at the bottom Mm -hmm. and and doing and peeling the chestnuts. And she would always be full of old stories of, of Christmases in the grand house where she worked. And I remember my favorite year of brandy butter was the year that my grandmother made the brandy butter and she had a cold and she simply couldn't taste the brandy. So she (laughs) kept putting more in and kept stirring it around going, there's something wrong with this brandy, Sheila. It's very, whatever make it is, don't get this one again. You know, and she just kept pouring it and pouring it. And when we all got the brandy, it was like, whoa. And as kids, we were like, whoa. Those, the three generations together, I think, is how I sort of see Christmas. But I think the point of Christmas is just to gather and to share and to enjoy. And so, as you so very rightly say, the fact that I haven't got those three generations doesn't mean I can't do that and doesn't mean um, I can't have enormous fun. I can. And I just think it's that lovely, it's a kind of excuse to do something we should be probably thinking about all through the year. But Christmas allows us that moment to gather and to share and to be incredibly grateful for what we have. I absolutely love it. And I'm so schmaltzy about it. Brilliant. Well, I hope you have the Christmas you deserve, which would be wonderful. Oh, that's great. And you, you've got all the family gathering together? We do have the three generations, yeah. Oh, love. In fact, we have four, oh, which is yeah. very extraordinary. Four that's generations. Wonderful. My wife's mother, us. My children and our grandchildren all gathering together. <laughs> oh, that is wonderful. Mm. I can't wait to see your pictures. I know you'll be pasting some. <laughs> well, I'll have my Christmas suit on, which is uh, bright red and covered in snowmen. Oh, lovely. Oh, gorgeous. <laughs> can't wait to see that. Have a fabulous Christmas to you and everyone who's tuning into your brilliant podcast. 
<laughs> yes, you will be able to see me in all my splendour on social media in my snowman suit, understated as ever. One of my favourite episodes this year was my chat with the lovely actor Michael Simkins, or Simo to all his friends, who's always understated and has been in just about everything and worked with virtually everyone, from Meryl Streep to Stephen Fry. In fact, if you get the chance to get to London in the new year, you'll catch him in the brilliant play by Sherlock and Doctor Who's Stephen Moffat, The Unfriend, alongside Francis Barber, Amanda Abington and Rich Shearsmith at the Criterion Theatre. Of course, if you can't make that, then at least you can listen to this amazing story about his family get-togethers in the family flat above his father's shop in Brighton when he was a boy. This is brilliant. We had improbably wonderful Christmases where a lot of relations used to descend on us, uh, probably on about the morning of Christmas Eve, and they would occupy all these spare rooms in this big tall house we had above the premises that we owned. So we'd have Auntie Glad and Uncle Harry down from Wembley. We'd have Dad's brother Percy and his wife Elsie. We'd have Lena and Norman come from Swindon. <laughs> all of them seemed to be able to play a musical instrument. Wow. And all of them seemed to have an encyclopedic knowledge of early 20th century sort of American-based jazz and dance music. There didn't seem to be a tune from really Scott Joplin right up to Frank Sinatra that they didn't know or couldn't play. Amazing. So the upshot of this was that the Christmases in our house were not only culinary feasting in the old traditional style that families had then, but they were this sort of orgy of music and conviviality. And me as a little four, five, six, seven, eight-year-old boy, I was just drenched in this stuff. And I think in a sense, it was probably the strongest influence on my life. Now, the point I'm getting to is this. In the Christmas of 1964, my Auntie Lena from Swindon, somebody bought her a Grundig tape recorder that was space age invention. Yes, amazing. Big, hefty thing. You'll remember them very well. Mm. And she decided to try out her tape recorder recording some of our parties on Christmas night and Boxing Night. Oh, wow. And she did it for the next 12 years. Oh, my word. Do you still have them? I do. Oh, my word, that's fantastic. What it means is that there is this extraordinary document lasting probably 12 years from the age when I was five to when I was probably 17 and starting to grow out of that sort of thing. You know, I was a late teenager by then. There is this extraordinary audio treasure trove of my Christmases. And I've probably got two or three hours of material from each Christmas over 12 years to just select one at random, like Christmas 1966, when I would have been nine. I can pluck the cassette out, I can put it in, and within seconds, I am taken back into this little room above the shop with all these aunts and cousins and brothers and my late dad and my late mum. And you can hear the chatter. It's, you know, it's, there's nothing particularly performed about it. There's a lot of uh, chatter. You can hear people laughing. You can hear the clinking of bottles. You can hear the lighting of cigars. But through it all, there is this a sort of audio document of all the tunes that they grew up with that they were then passing on to me. And this is probably as you can imagine, really one of my most treasured possessions because mm. merely to put this on, it is an audio time capsule that immediately places me back in that room. How fantastic. I can remember those parties. The same thing, aunts and uncles, all gathering together and brothers and sisters 
they'd had a few drinks and they would all start to sing. So I know that atmosphere. I'm so looking forward to hearing this, but just in my head, I can picture it. But the thing that always really reminds me of it is I can actually sense the smell of it. Strange things like the scent of Dubonnet. Uh, exactly. Yeah, the scent of Dubonnet. You've mm. absolutely captured that environment in one reference. <laughs> the smell of mannequins and Tom Thumbs, those little cigars that we used to sell downstairs in our shop, you know. <laughs> of course. The, the things like Vorning's Advocar and Tangerines, which was another smell you only really got in the 60s over Christmas. Yes, and why do people only smoke cigars? All of my relatives, none of them smoked. And at Christmas, the room was always full of cigar smoke. That's right. Mm. And not only that, but it was the only time I ever saw my mum Peggy smoke. And she would, she, I never saw my mum smoke except on Christmas night when she would get out an embassy from dad, because dad smoked embassy <laughs> and guards. That mm. was another one, dad smoked, 20 guards. And <laughs> mum would smoke a cigarette. Extraordinary. Perhaps it was to give her false confidence because it was the only time I ever heard her sing was on Christmas night when she would sing the same songs every year. And perhaps that cigarette just steadied her nerves because, of course, she was in a very male-dominated environment. She had three sort of music-mad sons. She had a mm -hmm. music-mad husband. And this was probably the only time I ever saw mum perform. So I suppose the ritual of having an embassy beforehand was something that would just give her the confidence she would need. Is there any particular song that you remember her singing? Oh, yes, Michael. Mm -hmm. Goodness, I do. She would love to sing This Is My Beloved from Kismet. Oh. <laughs> and also from Kismet, and this is probably the thing, I mean, this is the recording that I still can't hear now. You, you'll understand why when I tell you. There's a recording from one of the Christmases of her singing um, Give Me the Sunshine of Your Smile. Give, Give me, the me your smile. The side in your, your eyes. eyes. Oh. She sings the first verse in it with my mm. auntie Glad accompanying her on the piano. And then the whole family, the whole room joins in with the chorus. Oh. And then dad sings the second verse to her. Oh, my and word. it's the only time they ever sing. But to, to hear it, I, I can still well up at the mere thought of it. Because, of course, they're both long gone now. Yes. Would you like to hear a little bit? I would love to hear a little bit. Yes, please. This, if I can get it to work, you'll have to excuse me. I've just got to uh, reach this very ancient cassette player. And I hope this comes over. This is just a little bit of a song that was very big in the 30s called My Blue Heaven. And this is just a little flavour of it. This is the, you'll hear, a, I think, a bit of my brother playing piano solo, and then you'll hear the whole family singing the last chorus. Oh, yes. Now, there's a party I'd like to have been at. <laughs> Michael, that's so lovely. Thank you. Ah, bygone days. Although I don't think I've ever heard a whippoorwill called. 
even when evening is nigh. Okay, one of my favourite people in the world now, the brilliant comedian Joe Pasquale, the king of panto. Now, I've seen Joe do panto, well, a number of times, and if you get the chance, take it. He's the best there is, particularly because he always gives his all. Not an easy thing when you've got three shows in a day and 75 shows to do in six weeks or less, but Joe never stints. And that's because he cares, as this story will show once he's told us about his panto experience during COVID. Every single Christmas I've ever had, except for the year of the first COVID, I still did a panto, but it shut after four days. <laughs> yeah. 35 years of, of doing a panto, I said, but the only year that I still had Christmas, you know, like three or four, well, the whole time off was two years ago. And we did panto in, in Southampton, got four shows in, uh, and I was with Leslie Joseph, right? And it was at the time when everything was changing, the whole PC world was changing, and they rewrote it saying, you have to get permission first. You can't just kiss her when she was asleep. So it's <laughs> non-consensual. And everybody was moaning, going, it's non-consensual if you kiss her. Non-consensual kiss. <laughs> and so we had to rewrite the whole crime to get somebody that's in a coma to give consent to kiss her to wake her up. <laughs> but so we did four shows with Leslie Joseph, who only had one lung, strangely enough. Well, not strangely, if you've had it out, it's not strange. Um, but, yeah, she was, had cancer quite a few years ago, and she had one of her lungs out. So she was paranoid about catching it for obvious reasons. Mm. And we did four shows, and everybody was being tested every day. The whole company was being tested. On the half-hour call, um, they're saying, OK, if you haven't heard from us, um, then go home. And that was all we had. We said, all we heard, right? And, and before even the, the announcement was finished, Leslie was out the door. She phoned me about 15 minutes later. I said, what's happening, Leslie? And she went, I don't know. I'm nearly home, but I'm not staying there. <laughs> and they shut the show because I'm about six positive. Wow. So that was the only time that I didn't do a panto. It was a very weird time because normally you get Christmas Day off. And as you know, on Christmas Day, if you're doing 12 shows a week, six days a week, I normally sleep on Christmas Day. Yeah. I tried, tried not to go home. I did if it was a reasonably local one, but if it wasn't, more than two hours' drive, stay there, end up um, having a, a Christmas dinner from a microwave and sleeping. That's, mm. what I, that's what I tend to do. Then the year that I didn't do it, I had no idea what to do. What, I've got to go visit people? No, I don't want to go visit them. What? <laughs> the problem is when you're in that mode at Christmas, when you're in yeah. that panto mode, you start having conversations with people and everything they say to you, you think of a joke for. Yeah, you do. You're compensating for that. And the, the, what's really weird, and you know, you've done pencil yourself, is everybody thinks, oh, Christmas Eve shows are going to be great. Boxing Day shows are going to be great. Christmas Eve, right, the, the kids are loving it, but the, the parents, the adults are sitting there going, oh, God, what am I doing here? I've got to wrap those presents. I've got to do the turkey. I've got to do that. Oh, no, I forgot to buy that. What a turkey. Oh, no, the sausage rolls. What am I going to do? And they're, <laughs> they're not listening to the show at all. So you're dying on your ass yeah. in front of 2,000 people going, oh, they're not interested. And then if you get to Boxing Day, it'll be great Boxing Day. You get to Boxing Day, everyone's knackered. They don't want, what am I doing Boxing Day? Oh, and I've got hangovers, and you don't get nothing back. No. You think they're going to be great. Yeah, it's strange. It's going to be a sort of a wet Wednesday with a couple of kids in. Yeah. And you go, what a great show. That was brilliant. And quite often it can be just one person in an audience, can't it? You'll find one person, a foil. One person is all you need. It really, because then, it's, you know, it's a catalyst for everybody else. You pick on that bloke, and then the waves just, it's like dropping a stone in, in a pond, as you know, and it, it, it filters out. And then the old audience come in, just on, right on the back of the wave of that one bloke or that one woman. And it's mm. wonderful. One of the best experiences I ever had. This is, this is a very weird story, this. Um, and it's a couple of things happened on this that, that remind me of this. But 
we, we always, because you do so many shows, you know, for, for us, it's just another show. Every show is just another show, mm. right? And we don't realise sometimes, we forget that, that sometimes these these shows have had a profound effect on some of the audience, not everybody, obviously, but maybe one or two people might have some profound effects. But you don't know this unless they tell you, unless you know this. For us, it said 75 shows in six weeks, okay, that's what you do. And one of the best experiences I ever had was on the relaxed performances. You ever done relaxed performances? Yeah, I like it. Well, I've got two autistic grandchildren, so they love those things. They're great. Absolutely. So um, it's one of my favourite, well, it is the favourite show of the whole run for me because they bring, forgive me if I'm a teacher at Suck Eggs, but as you know, if anybody <laughs> listening, they bring the noise levels down, they, they bring the band levels down, they don't do any pyros, yeah. they get the lights up and they keep the back doors open in case anybody panics, anybody's got a bit of claustrophobia and you can see the whole audience and you see what's going on. Uh, and I always go at the beginning of the show and as I was saying earlier, I, you do a little speech and I always introduce the characters so they know who's coming on. So I, I say, this is a goodie, this is a baddie, boo for them, cheer for them. So they know exactly what they've got to do. And as you know, it's for people autistic, anybody with any problems, whether it be physical problems, uh, whatever the problem is, sometimes it's too much for them to take in all the extravagance of a panto, the noise and the pyros and it scares them. So. Uh, they're a great thing to do just generally, but on this occasion, sometimes you have to cut a lot of stuff. They'll go, right, we have people with uh, with sensory problems here, so you can't squirt the water pistol at them today. You can't do this. You can't spit water in someone's face, which I tend to do sometimes in panic if you're doing busy bee. You can't have flashing lights and all that sort of all stuff. All of that stuff. Mm. So, but there's sometimes three or four minutes to fill in because they've got a costume change or a scenery change. So mm. you might cut that whole scene and go, what do we do for that three or four minutes? And always they say, Joe, can you go and do three or four minutes there? <laughs> yeah. What do you want me to do? Anything, just do four minutes. That's all it takes to do the scene change. Right. Okay. And I remember once I was in Wolverhampton's where it was and I went out. I had no idea what I was going to do. And the uh, the DSM said to me, uh, what are you going to do so I know what you finish on? So I don't know. Uh, listen, I'll finish. Right, when I finish, I'll just say, uh, let's get back to the story. I'll just go and talk to them. And that's what I did. I went and sat in the front of the stage and I said, you're all enjoying it. How uh, much? Who's your favourite character? And I just talk, literally talked to them. Mm. Uh, and particularly there's one lad at the front who, when I say lad, he was probably in his 40s. And he had his carer with him. And I uh, just started chatting to him, asked him what his name was. And I think his name was Dylan, if I remember rightly. And he was just talking, I was talking to him. He was telling me he fancied the, the princess and just a general, and people were laughing at the chit chat we were having. And then I saw his carer was crying. I thought, oh, I've, I've overstepped the market. I wasn't sure if she was um, uh, autistic or whether I'd overstepped the market. I didn't know what I'd done, but I'd done something wrong, but I didn't know what it was. Mm. So I, I came there. I knew I'd done enough time for them to cover the scene. I'd get off. And then afterwards, this, this girl, uh, and I wasn't sure whether she was care or not at that point, she came back with Dylan. And uh, and I apologised if I upset her. I didn't know what I'd done. She went, no, you didn't upset me at all. So I said, oh, okay, um, was everything all right? And she went, yeah, and she started crying again. And it worked out that Dylan had shut down over the past four years. He hadn't said a word to anyone in four years. Wow. And I was the first person he'd spoken to that somehow um, he he I interacted with him and it just connected with the character on stage somehow and he spoke to me and he hadn't spoke yeah. to anyone in four years. And you realise then that we just do another show and it it's not necessarily that to somebody in the audience. I mean, you don't yeah. know that until you're told that, though. No, the speed with which those children will accept you, especially if you're playing a goodie and they, they, they fall in love with you. Yeah, it's wonderful, it's, isn't it? Yeah. It's wonderful. We don't, we don't realise that we, it, sometimes it has an effect far beyond anything we could ever hope for, even. There we are, Joe Pasquale. I told you he cares. Catch him in Panto if you can. 
Of course, another guest of mine who's been doing Panto for even longer than Joe is the man who was my very first guest in 2022, the comedian Freddie Davies, or Freddie Paraface Davies as I grew up knowing him. Freddie has been performing in, writing and producing pantomimes all over the country since the early 1960s. So let's continue this compilation of Christmas wishes with one of his panto memories. <laughs> My favourite story that actually happened to me was a true story. Mm-hmm. I used to do a sketch in the pantomime, every pantomime did, called The Comedy Band. And it was originally done by Sid Millward and the Nitwits oh, hundreds of years ago. <laughs> and it was a lineup of, of musicians, allegedly musicians, a woman on the end playing a triangle and a fellow with a trombone and somebody else with a trumpet mm. and a, a, guy with, a guy with a great big sousaphone. <laughs> but the fellow with the sousaphone, if you imagine all lined up in front of you, so the, so the woman with the triangle on the left and the fellow on the right is the fellow with the sousaphone. He was dressed as a Scotsman with a white face and a big left gammy foot. <laughs> we used to make it with a, a Wellington boot with bandages around it. Yeah. So it looked really sore. And then I used to come on as the comic on the end with a big bass drum and stand next to the guy with the kilt. And I had a pair of hobnail boots on, a loin skin. <laughs> And a Busby <laughs> and green tights. So you get the picture. I do. And, and I would, <laughs> the band would come on, you see, and, and the feed, whoever it was, you know, the mayor of the town in front of me. And now I'm going to introduce you to my my band. And the band would wander on these awful musicians, all dressed very strangely. And we used to do all these awful gags like, where do you get those knickers from? And you'd say, Cyprus. I said, what about us in Cyprus? She said, Nicosia. <laughs> Awful. <laughs> and I'd stand next to this the Scotsman with the gummy foot and pretend with my hobnail boots that I was going to kick it or hurt it. Mm. So halfway through the sketch, it was the poet and peasant. And I pretend to hit the foot. So towards the end of the sketch, the, the conductor or the feed for the piece would come over and grab my drumstick out of my hand and throw it on the stage between the Scotsman's legs. <laughs> and he used to say, pick it up. So I used to then go down, lie on my back, and as I was picking the stick up, would gently look up the kilt. <laughs> and I'd come away from looking at the kilt and look at the audience, and they were all going well. And then I'd pick up my big bass drum, turn it round, and on the other side it said no. <laughs> Brilliant. Funny gag, actually. It's, it's a good gag. gag, yeah. So... We get to Christmas Eve, Palace Manchester, and he throws the stick down and I, he says to me, pick it up, and I go down on my back. And as I was about to look up the kilt, I could see there was a light coming from the kilt. <laughs> I took my drumstick and I gently looked under the kilt and up the kilt and underneath, with, they'd rigged him up with fairy lights <laughs> all around his private parts. And it's... And there was a flashing sign which said, Merry Christmas, Fred. (laughs) Well, I have to tell you, Mac, I couldn't stand up. (laughs) I was in hysterics. I'm lying on my back. I couldn't get up off the stage. And they had to do a blackout and close the scene. I couldn't get up. (laughs) And I suppose that's one of my favourite moments in Padua. Oh, that's brilliant. But I think... I think the, 
the memory I'd like to put into my time capsule is a wonderful parody that was written for me at Christmas by a couple of writers I had from Batleyway, mm. a couple of Yorkshire lads, and they they came in to see me and, and asked, could they offer something material-wise? And I said, yes. And they wrote for me for many years after. Uh, and and they, they'd written this lovely parody to the 12 days of Christmas. And I used it and have used it over the years, every year. And it's like the 12 budgies of Christmas. <laughs> well, I'll do it for you quickly. I won't do more because it goes on forever. But it went like this. On the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me a budgie in a silver cage. <laughs> on the second day of Christmas, my true love gave to me two millet sprays and a budgie in a silver cage. On the third day of Christmas, my true love gave to me three apple cores, two millet sprays and a budgie in a silver cage. <laughs> on the fourth day of Christmas, Look, gave to me four lettuce leaves, three apple cores, two millet sprays, and a bungee in a silver cage. On the fifth day of Christmas, my true love gave to me five pots of seed, <laughs> four lettuce leaves, three apple cores, two millet sprays, and a bungee in a it finishes a minute. On the sixth day of Christmas, <laughs> to me, six sandy bottoms, five pots of tea, four lettuce leaves, three apple cores, two millet sprays, and a budgie in a silver cage. I'll skip to 12. On the 12th day of Christmas, my two located to me, 12 swings are swinging, 11 bells are ringing, 10 wooden perches, nine silver mirrors, eight little ladders, seven plastic playmates, six sandy bottoms, five pots of tea, four lettuce leaves, three apple cores, two millet sprays, and a in silver cage. Brilliant. <laughs> Lovely. Well, the light is fading and I have to make my way home from my recording studio here at my country residence to my London penthouse. And there's a huge speed bump in the lane outside the manor house that I have to say I'm developing a bit of a phobia about. <laughs> Still, I'm slowly getting over it. So before I completely crack up, let's hear what the Hollywood actor, producer and writer Jim Piddock chooses for his Christmas time capsule. You're slowly getting over it. Think about it. So, yeah, so Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you, absolutely. I always had wonderful memories of Christmas growing up. And then when, when I had my daughter, it was uh, equally as fun. Well, that is a great part of it, isn't it? Is watching it through the eyes of children, I think. Definitely, yeah. It was magical as a child. For me, I mean, uh, as I say, everyone has different experiences, but I always thought it was extraordinary. I still uh, still feel that magic. Yeah. And the, the Santa thing, you know, it's just amazing. That was, to me, just magic. It was absolute magic. Mm. I remember when I was 14, mm. and, and this is sort of an enduring Christmas memory, really. I bought, uh, I used to send out Christmas cards, um, which I, I sadly don't really do anymore. I just sort of um, contact people instead around Christmas. Mm. Um, and I bought, I was 14 years old, and I got bought these, some awful, awful Christmas cards. They were all askew, so the bottom was all, it wasn't at right angles. So you, when you sort of stood it up, it, it, it was like the Leaning Tower of Christmas. It was just this bizarre kind of thing. And it was not a very big card, and, and it was pretty cheesy. In fact, it was very cheesy. And I sent it to a friend of mine I'd known since I was two years old, um, whose name was Mike, actually. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> I sent it to him. He lived about three or four miles away from me. And about three or four days later, I got a Christmas card back in the mail, and it was the same card that he literally <laughs> just put an arrow between his name and my name and then an arrow back up again. <laughs> and, and that was it. 
And and I I'm not sure the motivation. It was either just a, a, a wonderful stupid joke, which was in character, or he thought this was such a crap card it didn't deserve to get a, a decent new one back. <laughs> um, anyway, it came back to me that year, and it made me laugh. It made me laugh, and so I kept it. And the next Christmas, I put another arrow on and sent it back to him. Oh, brilliant! But I added, I think, sort of a nose ring or something to the reindeer. <laughs> So then, of course, he sent it back to me with then, you know, a bow tie on the reindeer. And 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 it went on like this for 38 years. No. And we went for 38 years. And in that time, I left England in my early 20s. And so it went back. Uh, first, it was in Kent. We both lived in Kent. And it went back and forth there. And then, you know, all through our university years, it back and then I went uh, age 24 to America and it went from San Francisco back to him. And then when I moved to New York, it went from New York back to him and back again. And then LA and then back from LA and then back again. And this went on for 38 years. And each time there would be a new thing added. And then we would write in what it was, you know, like, uh, and it was sometimes just random stuff. Uh, he'd get a, a walking stick or glasses or, or, um, and then other times it reflected the, the, the times. So there was like one year, there was a Millie Vanilli wig, you know, <laughs> in that era. So yeah. it was sort of this, almost this kind of history of the, the last part of the, the, uh, the 20th century and the first part of the 21st century. And then it would have continued to this day, but uh, it, when I'd sent it from LA, as usual, dutifully, to him, and, and he got it and sent it back, and it never arrived. Oh. I was actually heartbroken because it was just this kind of chronicle of not just our friendship over the years, and then we'd see each other, you know, every time I came back to England. Mm. And as I say, I've known him since I was two. So he's literally the oldest friend in the world. Mm. And it was sort of, it, it almost broke my heart. It was like, oh, God, this is terrible. And of course, you think of it an omen. Oh, life is finished. I'm going to die next. And <laughs> of course, it was all that nonsense. Um, and that, But I did realize, uh, just when I was sort of thinking about this the other day, it actually stopped the year that my daughter was 14. How bizarre is that? Because I bought it when I was 14. Yeah. And, here, and then it stopped the year that she was 14. And I kept waiting, thinking, oh, it just got lost, because the, the US Postal Service is, is considerably worse than the UK one. And I thought, oh, it'll show up, you know, January, mid-January, it'll it'll just come late, February. And I kept waiting, like a sad little child, you know, waiting for, for Santa to arrive, and, and, uh, <laughs> and it never came. So I had to sort of eventually give up on it. Um, you do hear those stories, though, don't you, Jim? Wouldn't it be amazing? There'll be now another 14 years hiatus since it... Um, <laughs> well, there you are. This is the year. So this is the year. Yeah, and it, it'll show up here. This uh, an address he doesn't even know I had. No, <laughs> and somebody will say, "How did you do that?" Yeah, and, and then this slightly overweight man with a, a rather large beard will just wink at you. Yes, and yes. and you'll go. And I'll say, "Mike, how are you?" <laughs> <laughs> so that was the story I, I thought of. Just yes, I mean, rather than a terrible present I got or a great present I got, it's a beautiful story. It's a really fabulous story. What I love about it is that what it shows is that constant friendship that went on and on and on. It was enduring, and that's what I loved about it. Jim, that's a fabulous story. Thank you very much. Merry Christmas. You too. And there we are. Sadly, we didn't have room in this episode for all the guests I've spoken to about their Christmas memories. All together now. Ah, come on, you could do better than that. Ah... 
that's better. But happily, there will be another episode very soon with all of them in it. One, two, three, hooray! Oh, come on, now join in. Hooray! So until then, may your days be merry and bright. And may all your Christmases be free of thick snow so you can travel safely. Right, I'm off back to 1967 to hear Michael Simpkins' mum sing The Sunshine of Your Smile. If fancy joining me in a little bit of time travelling? After all, that's basically what we do in every episode. Right, here we go. Hop on board. I hope you're wearing your tank top and you've pumped up the tyres on your chopper bike and are prepared to enter a room full of laughter, alcoholic fumes and a thick fog of cigarette and cigar smoke. Yep, you can't win everything. OK, deep breath, everyone. Oh, Merry Christmas! <coughs> Flexibility, take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.